The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member at tntradio.live. The conversation continues with Bruce DeTorres on today's News Talk TNT Radio. This is World Stage, exposing the tyrannies and exploring our power with deep dives into history, current events, dangerous trends, and the nature of reality. At the top here, a quick announcement. Last December, Julian Assange's two-day public hearing was announced for February 20th and 21st at the UK High Court to determine whether Julian will have permission to appeal or whether he will be extradited to the United States. TNT will be at the Royal Courts of Justice, broadcasting and covering the entire two days if required. Then TNT will broadcast from various locations throughout London. Also, the London premiere of The Trust Fall, Julian Assange, will be at Rio Cinemas on Sunday, February 18th at 1 p.m. The film will be followed by a panel discussion and Q&A with Tariq Ali and Kristen Rafson and hopefully Stella Assange. To find out more, go to Google and search The, Tru the Trust Fall, Julian Assange, London premiere. With me this hour is Monica Wiesack, author of America's Last President, President, What the World Lost When It Lost John F. Kennedy, and the newly released on February 7th, Michael Jackson, The Man, The Music, The Controversy. Both are available at the usual sellers. Monica is deeply interested in historical figures who displayed courage and maintained authenticity amidst massive pressures and hurdles. Thank you very much for joining me again today, Monica. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much, Bruce, for having me back on. Well, I am most excited to talk to you. And to give you your due, I, I do want to recap my thoughts and, and uh, appreciation of your first book, the one that came out in 2022, America's Last President, about John F. Kennedy. I even composed this because I wanted to get it right in honor of the tremendous work that your book is. It's an essential history about a great man who worked really hard for the people, for the empowerment and prosperity and peace of the whole world. He was killed by horrible financial and imperial interests, and his death was blamed on a patsy, a patriot, a man who was working undercover for America, Lee Harvey Oswald. And I wanted to ask you, Monica, what were your goals for your Kennedy book? Were you pleased or surprised by the response that it got? And specifically, what did you think about how much it was liked by so many other JFK scholars? Um, my goal was basically to get the truth out there and to give um, a broad overview of his presidency because I felt there were a lot of books that focused on this little piece or that little piece, but there wasn't anything really out there that really covered every policy, like every domestic policy, every foreign policy, and that really focused on what we lost. That's why I titled, uh, subtitled it, What the World Lost When It Lost John F. Kennedy, because the question that really matters 60 years later is what did we lose? How is our world different today than it would have been had he lived? And that's really the question I wanted to ask and answer by writing that book. And I hope that's what people get out of it. 
is I hope they realize this is not some obscure event, some obscure historical event that happened 60 years ago, but this is an event we're living with every single day. And I think people have realized that by reading my book. I think they're realizing all these things happening around the world today have a direct link to the JFK assassination and would not be happening or would be happening differently where he did he live and were he not assassinated and perhaps had his brother even followed after him. We would be living in a completely different world today. And I hope that's what people get out of my book. And I hope it motivates them and inspires them to want to recreate that world that JFK was trying to create when he was president. Um, and so this response has been very good. I mean, it's been very heartwarming. I've really, you know, appreciated the response I've gotten from everyone. And, um, you know, I'm happy that the book reminds people, you know, who JFK was and what we all lost and what we should try to regain. It is all that. And I've studied Kennedy and his administration and his assassination for many years before I wrote a book called God School, 9-11 and JFK, The Lies That Are Killing Us and the Truth That Sets Us, sets us Free. And I hope people go to my site, Bruce DeTorris, to read the amazing reviews and see if a book might be right for them. The biggest chapter in my book is called JFK. It's about Kennedy and his administration. And my attempt is to describe what, what we lost, where we went off course um, with his removal and my book out my book came out in 2021 and then in august of 22 yours came out and i didn't read it till mid 23 and it's a dream come true for this reason not only to appreciate john kennedy but also to inspire anyone in any country to see how one man tried to fulfill the ideals of the american revolution and Anyone who knows history, I think, would agree with me that we still struggle today with the ancient battle of between bullies and other people. Those who function along the credo, might makes right. I can take your lunch money just because I'm bigger than you. And you have to do what I say just because I can beat you up or I have more weapons than you. And it is the colonial, it is the imperial model. It's the aristocratic model. It's the oligarchical model. It's the rich versus the poor. This is the story on planet Earth. And an amazing thing happened in the 1700s when a group of colonies were able to declare their independence and fight to establish their independence and become the United States of America. And those people, wrote down this exact evaluation of the nature of humanity, the nature of history, the nature of governments, and inserted the best ideas of the Enlightenment and the Renaissance up to that time, which was this radical idea that all people had rights. Even the small and the weak have the same human rights as the big and the strong and those with weapons. And someone like john f kennedy to read about him just 60 years ago it's absolutely breathtaking looking how bumbling and fumbling presidents have been in the 60 years since how captured how much they have lied saying they're trying to do good things while they obviously just work for 
things that help the rich who own the banks and the companies that are continuing an imperial model on the world, which is exploiting all the other countries that they possibly can, keeping them poor, not letting them become sovereign and independent and economically and politically strong in their own right, which is exactly as you brilliantly document in your book, America's Last President, that's exactly what John F. Kennedy was doing. And I can't help but take a deep breath right now and ask, what do you know and what do you think of the candidacy of Robert Kennedy Jr.? So I have mixed feelings, I'll be honest. I'm eager to hear them. And while Monica uh, just said she's got mixed feelings of Robert Kennedy Jr., I can report that I, yes, you just said you have mixed feelings of Bobby Jr. What might those be? Yeah, so I've been a huge fan of his for a long time. I dedicated my book to him, America's Last President, because of his work during COVID, um, you know, and just how much courage and bravery he had during that time. Um, I My mixed feelings are really due to what's happening in Gaza right now and his unconditional support for one side and not looking at both sides because I feel, you know, the job of America of an American president is to stay neutral, to look at all sides and to really do what's best for humanity and for the American people. And it just seems like he's taken one side and refused to acknowledge um, the role that that side has played in the co- in the conflict and put all the blame on the other side rather than looking at what role both sides played, you know, because in every conflict, both sides play a role and you're not going to solve that conflict unless you acknowledge that. And so he seems to have failed to learn that from his uncle because his uncle said, you have to listen to all perspectives and that peace is a process. It's not an outcome. You're never going to achieve the outcome of peace if you don't follow the process of peace. And he just doesn't seem to be following the process of peace when it comes to this particular issue. And so my feelings are a bit mixed about him at this point. Um, I still really, really greatly admire his other work. And I hope that one day he can still become the man his uncle was. You know, I think he has that in him to be that great man. Um, And hopefully one day he still will be. Um, But I think he has a little bit to go. I I agree. I I, I completely agree. I was astonished. In the summer, something happened where he was first accused or confronted with the charge of anti-Semitism, and I couldn't believe how hard he came out to prove his support of Israel and all things Israeli. And then after October 7th, I've had the same, it's just made me scratch my head. It's such an anomaly compared to everything else I had been reading or thought I knew about him for years. I was reading his books uh, years ago. I think it's American Values. I was following his his uh, vaccine uh, awareness and work with Children's Health Defense for years. I was over the moon with what he was doing and saying in 2020, the first year of COVID. And then in 21, after the injections came out, absolutely thinking. And then when he declared his candidacy, April 2023, I thought, I can't believe what an embodiment 
of the of the values and the intelligence of his uncle and the tenacity and even playful competitiveness of the whole clan but especially his father i thought no one outworks a kennedy like that this is an absolute miracle and then after october 7th my my stomach flipped and i've since learned so much about the palestinian and israeli conflict from the likes of jeremy hammond and norman finkelstein i think it is and i'm really really almost nauseous that bobby jr doesn't have doesn't doesn't know what i just found out in a handful of months and and so i i have the same but if election day were today of the three major contenders at this point biden trump and kennedy kennedy is hands down would give my vote just because of what he does consistently know and teach about the horrible fascism in america the corporate capture of the institutions of power and of the state and all that he wants to do to address the chronic illness and all the wonderful things that it sounds like you monica also appreciate him but i am hoping against hope that uh wouldn't it be nice if he came out with a nice big statement and, and said what israel is doing in, in gaza is absolutely an abomination and it is absolutely reprehensible and it must stop uh immediately and what are your well your final thoughts about that before we dig deep into other things yeah i do agree with you he's by far the best candidate i don't think there's even any comparison between the three candidates um i yeah my only concern is he seems to be taking sides and i just don't think that's the job of an american president you know he needs to really look at humanity as a whole like his uncle did and strive for peace for everyone in the middle east like his uncle did you know for every single person living there um both on the israeli side and the palestinian side and i don't know what is causing that blockage for him why he is so one-sided i think it's dangerous for a president to be one-sided i think that's not the job of a president but i do think he's still light years better than trump and biden um mm -hmm. so you know there's just he's by far the best candidate and i think it's sad that this one issue has derailed his candidacy because he is in every other regard like by far the best candidate and i i don't buy into the notion that he's a bad person or an uncaring person you know a lot of people will criticize him and attack him online i don't buy into that i don't know what's causing his views but i don't think it's because he's bad or not compassionate I think there's some sort of blockage or something there. I don't know what it is, but he is a good person. You know, I followed him long enough to know that. So I mm -hmm. don't um I don't question his morality. I just question his perception at the moment. Yeah, it's uh it's a true head scratcher. Monica Wiesack is with me talking about all things Kennedy because she wrote one of the best books on John F. Kennedy that I have ever read, and I have read countless of them and listened to his speeches and watched all the documentaries and dug deep in research for the book that I wrote. And I cannot recommend her book more highly, America's Last President, What the World Lost When It Lost, John F. Kennedy. But wait, there's more. On the other side of this break, we are going to dig into her brand new book, Michael Jackson. Where is that subtitle? The man, the music, the controversy. And here now is important information from today's news talk. 
TNT. TNT's Timothy Shea. The race is essentially now Vivek Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley. Ron disappoints us. We'll be pulling his hat from the ring next. And the issue, as always, is why is the Nikki taking so much of the left's money? Well, maybe this will give you a little insight. She credits Hillary Clinton with inspiring her to enter politics, having attended a women's leadership summit at which Hillary spoke. And Nikki said, and I quote, I then had to decide whether I was a Republican or Democrat. See, Nikki has no core beliefs other than doing whatever her globalist masters, paymasters, want her to say. The Reckoning with Timothy Shea on today's News Talk TNT. In a democracy, the majority vote rules. But in most democracies, you can only vote for change every three or four years. To understand what people want, governments and political parties use focus groups. These focus groups can include as little as 20 people. Australia is a country of over 25 million people. Does making decisions based on 20 people sound fair to you? Have your say. Be heard in between elections. Download the 4MySay app now. That is number four, my say. Are we on the air? Am I on the air? You're on the air. On the air 24-7. Your news talk giant. TNT. This is World Sage and with me is Monica Wiesack. Monica, now please tell me about your brand new book about Michael Jackson. What what made you uh, develop that and write that? After obviously the satisfying experience of writing your very first book, America's Last President, how come Michael Jackson? Yeah, so I've been a huge fan um, of MJ since I was a little kid. The first song of his that I consciously remember hearing is Man in the Mirror. And I was so inspired by that song as a child. Like it made me want to be a good person and made me want to help, you know, the people that are forgotten by society. And in that video, he actually shows images of JFK and RFK and Martin Luther King. So he also introduced me to JFK as a child because I must have watched that video a gazillion times. I was so inspired by that song and I wanted to learn more about JFK, RFK, you know, Martin Luther King because of that. And then a few years later, he came out with songs like Heal the World, Black or White, these really unifying songs, you know, songs promoting peace. And the Heal the World video, he shows all these war-torn regions like from Asia to Africa to Israel and Palestine. And then he shows the children playing without prejudice. And then when the soldiers see the children playing, they put away their guns. And I know that's very utopian and unrealistic, but as a child, that really impacts you because, you know, as a child, you think, well, that's the world I want to live in. I want to live in a world where everyone gets along, everyone loves each other, where there's no war, you know, where there's no weapons and whatnot. So I was just so inspired by him and his music as a child. And then in 1993, when those allegations came out, and the media had been harsh towards him from the late 80s and early 90s, but when the allegations came out, then they really, really went after him hardcore. And as a child, I was just really confused by it because I'm like, here's this person writing this really beautiful art, this really unifying music, really spiritual in a lot of ways. And now all of a sudden, like the press is just going after him over an allegation that just didn't seem very credible to me. Obviously, at the time, I didn't know. Since years later, you know, when the internet became more widespread, I went back online to look at court papers and things like that. 
And so in my book, I basically wanted to tell his story. I wanted to introduce people to the music later in his life because it's um a lot bolder than I think people realize. Like he even wrote a song about the JFK assassination, both physical and character assassination in one song. So he's also the one that introduced into my head or into my subconscious the idea that JFK was character assassinated. So I, as I was growing up, you know, I'm listening to Michael's voice and he's saying, don't believe what the press writes about JFK. And I'm listening to that over and over and over, you know, because you listen to songs over and over. And so I think that really did seep into my subconscious so that when I grew up, I ended up writing a book about JFK and what was in essence his character assassination, you know, because I learned from Michael at a young age, like the media is not telling you the truth. You know, there's a whole nother side to this story. Um, and so, you know, as I grew up and they then he had allegations again in 2005, which again, once I looked into them, I was like, what I try to show in my book is how railroaded he was. I hope anybody that reads the book will see clearly that he was not a child molester. And I don't even think that's debatable. I mean, I think when you actually go through the evidence, I don't think anyone who honestly goes through the evidence could even question that he was a child molester. So I hope that people who read the book understand his story, understand what happened to him, and ask the question, why? Why is the one artist who's singing this beautiful unifying music, who's singing music that questions power? You know, he did a song called They Don't Care About Us, which is basically what you said in your intro, that those at the top don't care about the rest of humanity. And in that video, he shows, you know, a lot of atrocities from human history, including the shooting of Lee Harvey Oswald by Jack Ruby in that video. And so why is the one artist that's saying those things, the one that's being viciously attacked by the press, the one that you're not getting both sides of the story on? And I don't necessarily, I'm not going to say I know definitively the answer to that question, but I think that's a really fair question to ask and to raise. And so I wanted to raise with my book, you know, the question, how free are artists to express themselves? You know, how controlled is the music industry? How controlled is Hollywood? And if you're a major artist and you start veering into these maybe less safe avenues or less safe like conversations, you know, how does your career look then? Is your career become threatened, you know? And if, and if he had stayed your typical pop artist, would his, you know, image have been destroyed? So those are the sort of questions that I want people to think about when they read the book. When the first allegations of child molestation or pedophilia in the early 90s came out is that when you did your own research and got satisfied now it's all it's all specious and it's probably not true um it was hard then because you only had the mainstream press and it was hard to get access to information it's much easier to get access to information now so i would say until after his death i didn't really believe those allegations because i just you know, listening to many of his interviews and his music and just knowing his how much empathy he had for other people, I was very skeptical. But I wouldn't say that I knew definitively until after his mm -hmm. death. When I went mm -hmm. back online, I went and actually looked at the court papers. I went and actually looked at the details of what happened that I was then I was like, yeah, this is nonsense, BS. Like, And I felt guilty myself because even though I didn't believe it, there was always that little bit in the back of my mind you know, could it be true? And then when I actually looked at it, and I, I felt like a tremendous guilt in a way, because I was like, 
how could I even like have 1% thought there was a possibility that this was true? Because when you actually study it, you you can, it's so blatant. You can, you know, clearly see what or how much she was railroaded. And so I did feel guilt. And I think that's part of the reason I wrote the book, because I think it's a story that needs to be told. And I think people need to question the media about everything, you know? So if the media is viciously attacking someone, no matter who it is, no matter how strange you think they are, no matter how weird you think they are, whoever it is that the media is viciously going after, you need to ask yourself why. Why is he being smeared so heavily? And that, and I think that's the case about anybody. And so I think, I hope people learn that from my book is to really question the narratives that are pushed by the media. What year did he die? 2009. And within a year or two of that, you had gotten, you'd seen enough to be satisfied that, yeah, he was demonized and he was an innocent man? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You, once you like read through the court papers and whatnot, it's, I think you can very quickly figure it out. And I didn't write about it till over a decade later. Um, you know, yeah. as soon as I finished my JFK book, I knew I wanted to write about it um, because I had already studied it so extensively, you mm. know, that it was just a matter of um, putting those thoughts together and putting them on paper. But the research I had done, you know, years prior. So I was, um, I knew I wanted to put that out and share that information with as wide an audience as possible. I think your book, Exonerating Him, for lack of a better word, is the first that I've heard of such a piece. How many other writers have consolidated what exonerates him? Is yours the first, is yours the first book like this? Um, it's the first book that covers 1993, 2005, and that documentary that came out a few years ago. But there was a lady, Aphrodite Jones. She um, she was a best New York Times bestselling author. She had like seven New York Times bestsellers. I think most of them dealt with court cases like Scott Peterson. She sat at the trial every day. She wrote a book about it, and she went to all the publishers that she published through in the past Every single one of them came back and said, we do not want to publish a positive book about Michael Jackson. She could not get a single, despite the fact that she was a seven times New York Times bestselling author, she could not get a single publisher to publish her book. And she ended up self-publishing it. And this was like maybe 2007, 2000, 2008. So it was a lot more difficult to self-publish then than it is now. Now it's much easier. Um, but she said, you know, I, she said she felt so horrible at the way she was being treated by publishers that she thought, oh my God, it must be like a million times worse for Michael than it is for me. So she's like, I have to find some way to get this book out there, even though no one will publish it. And she ended up self-publishing it. Um, so that just tells you how controlled the publishing industry is. And if they don't like someone, you know, they can just say, I don't care if you're a New York Times bestselling author, you know, I don't care if this book will sell, we're not publishing it. And it, her so book wasn't even about Michael. It was about the trial. So, but hmm. obviously it came to the same conclusion as the jury and the publishing industry didn't have any interest in that. So this was a 2007 trial? A 2005 trial. And what was the verdict? Not guilty. So they accused him of 14 crimes in, from um, kidnapping to imprisoning a family to molestation. I mean, it's just ridiculous. I can go into it if you want. It takes a while, but just ridiculous charges. It was 14 in total and all 14 came back not guilty. Um, and even one of the, it was, even one of the jurors said it was so bad at times she just wanted to burst out laughing because it really, if it wasn't so tragic, it would be comedic. Um, you know, like 
just because they basically, essentially there was a documentary that came out. There was a hit job. He was um, with this boy in the documentary and then they accused him of molesting the boy. But then the, when they went to, uh, when they originally charged him, they charged him with molesting him after the documentary aired. So after everybody was already speculating that he was molesting this child, they said he started molesting this child, which would make him like the dumbest criminal ever. Um, but they had to do that because the boy, it was clear from the unedited documentary that the boy, you know, there was no molestation. And so they had to say, well, it happened after, because that's the, the next time he, that they saw each other, right? And so the whole, and then they kept changing the amount of times they said, oh, he was molested five times when they indicted him, when they got to trial, they said it was two times. And that's because they had to change the dates because they originally said it happened on these dates, but then they found an ironclad alibi. So then they said it happened on a different set of dates, which is why they had to change it from five times to two times. And then they found a videotape where this boy was praising Michael. So that's why they had to add the kidnapping charge to say that Michael forced the kid to say nice things about him. I was just... It, the charges kept changing and changing and changing and changing. And so by the time you get to the trial, like he's charged with something completely different than he initially was because they kept, the initial charges kept getting discredited and discredited and discredited. So they have to keep changing them, you know, because they couldn't go with what they were initially charging. I mean, it is like, like I said, if it wasn't tragic, it would be comedic. Like, did, and that's why one of the jurors said, you know, I wanted to break out laughing. When did the documentary Sorry, come out? Sure. When did the documentary come out? 2003. And that basically was some kind of inspiration for these people to make complaints about him? Yeah. So basically in the documentary, um, so in the doc, so this kid had cancer and he knew, or his, he was in the same dance class as the son of Michael's hairstylist. And they begged um, the hairstylist to introduce them to Michael and so this kid came up to Neverland and they ended up, Neverland's like 3,000 acres. It's got like multiple guest cottages and stuff. People visit it all the time. And basically they visited and the kid and his brother asked Michael, can we sleep in your room? And Michael was a little uneasy about it, but the kid had cancer. So he's like, you know, I think he felt bad telling him no. So he's like, that's fine. And Michael and his assistant and his kids slept in the room and they gave the, the bed to the boy with cancer and his brother. So in the documentary, it says, oh, he gave his bed to this boy. They didn't mention that he gave it to his brother as well and that his own kids and his assistant and a lot of people were in the room and whatnot and that the kids asked to stay there. So the media started speculating 24-7 that he's molesting this child. The police started investigating him. The Department of Children and Family Services started investigating him. And so the boy's family called Michael and said, we're being hounded by the press. Can we come stay at Neverland for a couple of weeks until the hoopla dies down because they're at our door. We can't go anywhere. And Michael was like, yeah, that's fine. If you want to stay on the property for a few weeks, that's fine. And so that's where the kidnapping charge came in. And the, and then that's when they said he started molesting him as the whole world is speculating he's molesting him because he hadn't seen the boy since the documentary aired, right? Until after it aired. So that's why they came up with those dates. But they have they had to keep pushing them out because they kept uncovering things that disproved their charges so by the time they went to court, it was like a totally different charge than what they originally indicted him under, which I think people don't understand um, because mm. the media never really explained the details and how they kept changing. And, you know, and when I think the jury foreman said, you know, who doesn't know the difference between being molested five times and two times like that? That's a big change to make in your story. Um, you know, I'm at, I'm at a crossroads. I want to ask 
about his his life after the trial, but you know what I'm going to ask instead. It's the major things that you learned in the three major categories of your subtitle, the man, the music, and the controversy. So what did you what did you want to highlight? What did you put in in the book to emphasize or just, you know, what did you find about him that you either admire or in, in terms of, you know, his accomplishments, his talents, things that he over Came, Michael Jackson, the man, what did you find? I think he had tremendous empathy, um, tremendous compassion, and tremendous courage and strength. I'm not sure there's anyone who had more strength than he did. Um, and just courage to sing really beautiful songs, really bold songs, really you know courageous songs. And he never changed who he was. No matter how much he was attacked, he stayed authentic. And I quoted JFK in my book, saying the greatest duty of an artist is to stay authentic and to stay true to themselves and let the chips fall where they may. And that's basically what Michael did. He stayed authentic, he stayed true to himself, and he let the chips fall where they may. Um, you know, he could have gotten in line, he could have been your typical, you know, pop artist who just sings what the industry wants them to sing or whatnot, but he didn't mm. do that. He was a true artist, he stayed authentic. And so I think, you know, what I learned from him is to be authentic to have empathy, to have compassion, to have strength, to have courage, um, and that no matter how much is thrown your way to keep going, um, no matter how big that hill is or how big that mountain is. Do you have a, a summary or a condensed biography of him in your book? Uh, yeah, the first half of the book. So the book starts with his child. The first chapter is like his child childhood to the thriller era which is like his first okay. it's not his first adult album but it's like the one that really catapulted him to superstardom and yeah. then i have a few chapters going through like the 80s and the early 90s where i kind of go into um what neverland is because it's a lot of people he didn't actually live there he lived there later in life but um neverland was more like a charity operation um i can go into that if you want later but well you know what i'd first like to hear about is um what i have heard hearsay okay i didn't i okay. haven't studied him but the hearsay that i heard about how he may have been abused by his father what what might be true what did you find about that yeah so he did say that his father was extremely demanding and he would um you know punish them if they weren't willing to perform or didn't want to work because since he was five years old he was like working every night after school you know, going late night performing, you know, so this, he doesn't remember not performing. And so if he wanted, if he didn't want to, you know, if he didn't, he would get hit, like, you know, it was, their father was really strict, but he did say later in life that even though he didn't understand why his father was that way when he was younger, he could understand it to some extent when he was older, because his father grew up a poor black man in the South. He knew, he knew what it was like to live in poverty and indignity, and he didn't want that for his sons. And he knew the only way for his sons to get out of that life of poverty was to work really hard and to make something of themselves. Um, and so he knew he had to be really strict with them to get them out of that life of poverty. But as a child, Michael didn't understand that. So he definitely had a better understanding of his father later in life, um, which he spoke about. Um, but his father was really, you know, tough on them when they were little. That is true. Did it? Did it cross the bounds into uh, abuse, uh, or or did, did you? Was it? Ah, uh, you know, discipline is such a it's such a it's such a relative thing. 
Uh, Monica, I'm going to ask you to answer that on the other side. Uh, Monica Wiesack is with me, teaching me about her brand new book, which came out February 7th, Michael Jackson, The Man, The Music, The Controversy. And here now is important information from today's news talk, TNT. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malsberg. Well, it's the weekend, and a lot of you parents are probably trying to figure out, what am I going to do to entertain my preschooler? Keep him happy. Keep her happy. Well, have you ever heard of Coco Melon? It's a like the most popular show on Netflix. It's for preschoolers, nursery rhymes, and all kinds of goodies, including things like this. Something that we know about you. You love to get up and dance. How about you break out those moves for your two biggest fans? Yes, that appears to be a little boy dancing in a girl's costume for his two gay daddies. And there's more. If you're not sure what to choose, think about all the things you like to do. Just be you. Just be me? Yep. When you're trying to decide, think about all the things you like to do. Just be you. Just be me? Yes, nothing like teaching your preschoolers how to dance around for their two gay parents. Hey, when did the two gay daddies teach the kid to spell indoctrination? Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday right here, 9 p.m. Eastern on TNT. Whatever happened to good? It's a word that gets thrown around a lot, and it's become our automatic answer to so much. Hey, how's things? Good. Your mum, your weekend? Good, good. Is good even that good anymore? At the Salvos, we believe good deserves better. Let's reclaim its true meaning. To us, good has always been about making a difference, and good never picks or chooses who it helps. Isn't it time we all remember what good really means? Bruce Torres on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Mono, Monica Wiesack is with me talking about her new book, Michael Jackson, The Man, The Music, The Controversy. And I had just asked you, ugh, probably not an easy question. But what, as you reflected on my question, which is, <laughs> to what extent his father hitting him could have been under the rubric or under the understanding of discipline, or did it cross the line into some kind of abuse? What, how did, how did you come to think of it? I think it depends on who you ask. I think Michael saw it as abuse. His brothers saw it as discipline. Um, Michael mm. was more sensitive than his brothers. He didn't think a child should ever be hit for any reason. Mm. So mm. I think he viewed it as excessive and abusive. Although, like I said, he did have somewhat of an understanding of it later in life. His brothers mm -hmm. viewed it as discipline. Um, so it really depends on who you ask. Um, yeah. You know, Michael mm -hmm. was more sensitive. Um, and the youngest, but, he was the youngest. Yes, he was the youngest. Um, and so his brothers were already older by the time they started performing. Um, and his brothers also appreciated, you know, that their father wanted them to be focused because they lived in a poor neighborhood. There were a lot of gangs in the neighborhood. So his hmm. father didn't want them hanging out with the other kids and the bad influence and the gangs and the drugs and all that. So I think his mm -hmm. brothers understood more that 
their father was keeping them focused, keeping them away from all the bad influences, and they appreciated that. Whereas Michael was so young, he didn't really understand what was going on or why he mm-hmm. had to perform every night. And so I think it was just harder on him. And he was just also, his mother said, extraordinarily sensitive. I think he was more sensitive than his brothers. And so I think he took it a lot harder than they did, you know, their father's, um, I guess, toughness yeah. and discipline. Well, that's, that's, uh, it's compelling because we all, we all remember childhood or some of us more than others. And moving on to this, the, uh, my memory of him, cause I was about his age was of course delighted as you know seeing the jackson five on television regularly uh, and then in the late 70s and 80s how he transformed first he had he had a couple of monster hits in the late 70s which were disco-ish and then of course uh thriller and and what he was in the 1980s and now i remember in addition to the controversies about the accusations of molesting children the uh, wh- what i saw and heard of his pointing out, speaking truth uh, to power about the exploitation of, of businesses. What did you learn and what can you tell me about what you saw about his uh, buckling uh, at the kind of control that it seemed, these corporate powers, maybe the monster that is Hollywood? What's, uh, what, what does your book teach about those type of things? Yeah, so he um, didn't like the recording industry at all. He called them like weasels and crooks. And he said that all they are is hardware. It's the talent is the artists. You know, the business is just the hardware. And he said, artists need to remember that they're the ones with the power. They're the ones with the talent. They may not have the capital, but they have the talent. And that the record companies are nothing without the artists, you know. So he was very outspoken about that, um, about criticizing the recording industry, criticizing Hollywood. He wrote a a song, Hollywood Tonight, where he's basically is saying that this girl is becoming Hollywood. So, so she's not going to Hollywood. She's actually becoming Hollywood. And he talks about, you know, like selling herself and selling her body and, you know, that she's kind of being trapped into this Hollywood world and she's no longer the person she was. You know, she gets on the Greyhound bus or whatever and she drives over to L.A. and she becomes Hollywood. She becomes a totally different person. She becomes a person who sells herself, who no longer knows herself. You know, so he did criticize Hollywood a lot, how Hollywood treats young people, how they treat young stars, and not just young stars, but all musicians. Um, He was very outspoken about that and very critical of the industry, um, which is another reason why I think he was um, demonized the way he was, is because, you know, if you speak out, against any kind of power, whether it be in Hollywood or, you know, the people pushing wars or whatever it may be, you know, you get a lot of pushback and a lot of people don't want you to speak out about those sorts of things or don't want you to sing about those sorts of things. Um, so he was very outspoken about the the music industry. And the music is a big teaching or theme inside your book, which I haven't read yet, looking forward to it. And I only know what was on the, the the videos, basically. I'm not going to say the radio, but yeah, the radio, yeah. even by the 80s and 90s still. So I guess those are the hits. And I would bet, but tell me if I'm wrong, that when one listened to his CDs, that through the majority of his songs, due to his sensitivity that you describe, was there something very compelling about the compassionate way that he described the characters in the stories of his songs? 
Yeah, one of my favorite lyrics is, you know, he did this amazing anti-war anthem called We've Had Enough. And he said, what did these soldiers come, what, what did these soldiers come here for? If they're for peace, then why is there war? Did God say that they could decide who will live and who will die? You know, and he's talking about like the ground shaking around this little kid and the ground is shaking around him and the father, which is obviously bombs dropping, you know, and his father grabbing his hand. So he really places you into understanding um, or empathizing with the people that are in that situation. And you feel like he's really there. Like those bombs are dropping around him as he's, as he's singing that. So I think there was tremendous, tremendous empathy in his music, um, tremendous sympathy in his music and just amazing compassion. And you could hear it in his voice. So it's not just the, his lyrics, but his actual voice. Like it's very raw. It's very sweet. It's very caring. And that's why when those 1993 allegations came out, like, that was a couple of years after the song Heal the World. And at that time, I would listen to that song like every day. And it was just such a beautiful song. And it was just, I just thought, oh, this is such a loving person, such a caring person. And then all of a sudden, the media is just going after him so hardcore. And I was like, it was as a child, I'm like trying to reconcile these two pictures. You know what I mean? Like, why mm -hmm. do I have one impression and why is the media pushing a different impression? Um, so I learned a lot from him just how society works and how power works, how media mm. works and how someone can be misportrayed and misconstrued. Um, so I think his, it's, I just think his story is a very fascinating story. Did you, did you find, and did you report in your book anything along the lines of his discovery or exposing, uh, either a cult or secret society or other machinations? Was he, trying to warn through his songs or through friends. I, cause I remember in the, in the dusty memory banks I have of Michael Jackson toward the end of his life. I think I remember stories of him reaching out to folks saying they're out to get me. Was there any kind of an assault taken on him health wise, medicinally or anything like that? Um, I do go extensively into his death in my book, the last few months and like the everything with the propofol and stuff like that. I leave it up to the reader to decide for themselves, like, you know, what it all means. Um, but I do go into a lot of detail around that. He definitely thought there was a conspiracy to destroy him. You know, he was open about that. There's no doubt about that. You know, he felt he was targeted, um, you know, and that, you know, he was basically being destroyed. Um, so how long, how long did he, how long did he feel that way? And what did he base the, those opinions on? I think just the way they were trying to railroad him, like what happened in 1993. And I go into great detail about that in my book. You see that it's very, very targeted. You can see it's a clear extortion attempt. I mean, the father is on audio, mm -hmm. you know, saying everything's going according to a certain plan that isn't just mine. Mm -hmm. People mm. are in certain positions. All I need to do is pull the trigger and this man will not sell another record. And so you see, and I go through that extortion and that whole thing like date by date mm -hmm. and everything that happened. But when he came out with the history album after those allegations and he spelled the first three letters capital. So he said, history means his story. So history depends on who tells it. And so right from the title of that album, um, you know, it's very revealing. And he had a song in there where he sang about the district attorney that was going after him. And he said something like, they want to get my ass dead or alive. You know, he really tried to take me down by surprise. I bet he missioned with the CIA. 
Now, I don't think Michael had any evidence or any, I think, you know, it may be just Michael's paranoia. I don't know, but he certainly thought it was much bigger than just some kid because Jordy, like Jordy ended up, Jordy is the son of the father who accused Michael. And according to Michael's hair stylist, you know, Jordy called him crying saying, why is this happening? Why is my dad doing this? Jordy ended up legally emancipating himself from both his parents, allegedly because he wanted nothing to do with them for you know, bringing him into this whole mess. Mm. Um, he refused to testify against Michael in 2005. You know, uh, a lot of his friends say that, you know, he told them nothing ever happened. And the reason he emancipated himself from his parents is because of what they put him through with this whole ordeal and making him, you know, participate in this thing. And so um, Michael knew it wasn't coming from Jordy. And so I think, and he knew the way like the prosecutors or the the district attorney was coming after him, the way the press were misreporting it. So I think the way he saw it is he understood there was, or he felt there was something bigger going on. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think he would have wrote those lyrics if he didn't feel that. As to whether he had concrete evidence or that was just a fear yeah. or paranoia of his, I don't know. Monica, toward the end of his life, what's your what what can you tell you know someone who doesn't know me? The you know what was his health situation? What were the drugs that he was uh, either using or abusing? What were the circumstances of his death? And to what extent did you see or did you suspect foul play? Okay, so he had um, a horrible, horrible burns on his scalp in the middle of nineteen eighties, um, third degree burns on his scalp, which he suffered for the rest of his life from. And he also had a horrible back injury because a bridge collapsed when he was performing. So he did suffer um, with painkiller addiction off and on during his life. But it's mm. important to know that that was due to genuine physical ailments that were, ha you know, that he had extreme physical ailments. Like I can't even imagine what thir third degree burns on, on, you know, one scalp feels like. He developed like horrible, brutally horrible and painful scars on his scalp. And he had to wear hair extensions to cover it up because he couldn't grow hair there anymore. Because so of a fire have, when he was, he was filming a Pepsi commercial in the yes. mid 80s, right? Yeah, yeah. So he he so, suffered he suffered pain from that for the rest of his life. Yes, yes, he did. Um, they okay. tried several times to repair it with surgery, and I think it made it even worse. Um, and that was part of the reason there was so much pain. Is they, okay. they tried to repair it so he could grow hair again, but they just worsened it, and it just it got, became even more painful than it was before. When did um, he have a bridge accident and hurt his back? Nineteen ninety nine. So okay. that happened in 1999. Um, so, and I know some people like his hairstylist think that the painkiller addiction was also partly emotional. Um, like it was obviously physical, but then just the, you know, the press constantly attacking him and whatnot, because it's much harder to deal with physical pain when you're also under emotional stress, you know, that physical be pain becomes much more unbearable. Um, now in terms of the propofol, that came into the picture um, because he was preparing for these concerts. And when he performs, he, his adrenaline is so high, he can't sleep. He needs like a few days to calm down his adrenaline and be able to sleep. Um, but these rehearsals were night after night after night. And he really wanted to redeem his name. Like his name had been so badly battered. He wanted to redeem it. And so he felt like he needed to have good performances and he just could not sleep. And he tried a bunch of natural stuff, but it just wasn't working. And this and is 2009? So, this is 2009? Yes, 2009. Okay. So, so the All last right. two months of his life, he was taking propofol to sleep. 
But I think he started to realize it was a mistake because he was seeing this holistic healthcare practitioner the few months before he took propofol and she was helping him with all these natural remedies, but it wasn't working. So he took propofol and the last few days of his life, he reached out to her for help. And that tells me that he was sec having second thoughts because you usually don't go back and ask for help from someone who's castigated you because she told him, you know, don't take this propofol. It's dangerous. It's a bad idea. So if he's going back to her for help, that tells me he's saying, man, you know, she was right. I need was to, he taking know. that? Was he taking that to sleep? That was a sleep drug? Yes. Yes. He was okay. taking it to sleep. Um, and the problem with propofol is it doesn't really put you to sleep. It makes you feel really rested but it doesn't fulfill the biological needs of sleep. So it'd be like eating something and getting no nutrition out of it. Um, and so it is ultimately what killed him. Now the doctor that was monitoring him, you know, he was on the phone with like girlfriends, he was answering emails and phone calls and he took like half an hour to call 911. And what he ended up being convicted of manslaughter, you know, cause every doctor at that trial said they were just astonished that he didn't call 911. Um, and I think that's a big part of the reason why he was convicted of manslaughter, because mm. had he called 911 immediately, Michael should have survived, um, you know, but he was concerned more about, you know, covering his own behind, so to speak, than than getting help for Michael. Um, as, as you now, as you now, as you studied the circumstances of his death, what what did you see? Even was there anything to make you think that there was a. There were a lot of anomalies about the circumstances of his death. Was he set up, in your opinion, in any way? What to what degree? Um, I'm agnostic on that. I don't have an opinion on whether there was foul play. I do. I do know members of his family think there was foul play. Hmm. I can see why people think there was foul play. I can also see why people think it was just a horrific accident. I can see it both ways. So I don't really have an opinion either way. I do think there's a possibility. I'm not closed off to it, a foul play. Mm -hmm. um, it's certainly very odd the way he died. Um, it's certainly very abnormal. And the fact that he was looked like he was having second thoughts about the propofol and then suddenly he dies, I think that to me is a little suspicious. Um, but I can also see it just being a horrific accident, you know, because you are playing with fire, so to speak, when you're taking, you know, that strong of a drug at home and you don't have the proper equipment there and the proper resuscitation equipment. And so I, I could see it going either way. Back to the people who were prosecuting him in the early 90s and also in the mid 2000s. Did you see beyond a local kind of effort to exploit him? Because I'm inferring from what I've heard that the 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 family suing him was just gouging him for the money, but also the press and the prosecutors seemed uh, to be overzealous, or, or is it even more obvious than that? Were they just on a real witch hunt for some reason? Yeah, I do think they were on a witch hunt. I actually originally considered titling my book, um, The Man, The Music, The Witch Hunt, and but then I went with controversy. Um, at Monica, we're day. down. We're down to our, we're down to our last minute. Where should people find you and your book? Uh, they can find it on Amazon and other outlets like Thrift Books and Barnes and Noble. Michael Jackson, the man, the music, the controversy by Monica Wiesak, W I E S A K, and don't forget her 2022 book, America's Last President. If you write in the Michael Jackson book with the intelligence. 
and the compassion that you did your, your Kennedy book. I simply cannot wait. Thank you so much, Monica, for, for joining me. We're going to stay in touch. I'm a true friend and fan. And this is today's News Talk TNT.